Hello and welcome to the Naval Air Podcast. My name is Mike and I'll be your host. Before we get started on this week's subject, or this week, who am I kidding? How about the next subject? Before we get started on the next subject of the AW Training Pipeline, I'd like to take care of what little minimal housekeeping that this podcast has at this moment. Um, First off, I'd like to encourage you to send me email or feedback. You can send your email or feedback to navalaircrew at gmail.com. If that seems kind of hard to remember, you can also just go to www.navalair.net. And in the upper right-hand corner of that website is a link to the email address as well. Now, I have received some feedback. I've received some feedback on iTunes. Thank you very much. You can also go there to leave feedback if you'd like. Um, One bit of feedback was someone was asking in the course of making this oral history, if you will, someone is asking for uh, some feedback or the point of view of a naval flight surgeon. Yes, flight surgeons are indeed... uh, a deeply ingrained part of naval aviation. Without a flight surgeon's approval, you cannot fly. Every year on your birthday, your flight physical expires, and you have to go in and get one, and it's a flight surgeon that performs the flight physical. In addition to uh, when you actually get started, whatever uh, initial course you have as a, as a naval aviator, for me it was Naval Air Crew School, for others it's AOCS, Aviation Officer Candidate School, or API Aviation Pre-Flight Indoctrination. Any of these courses, you'll visit the Naval Aeromedical Institute, also called NAMI. I also talked about that in the, uh, the second show. And there, that place is just full of flight surgeons waiting to check you out and make sure that you'll, you are physically capable to perform duties involving flight. So yes, I'm going to I'll, I guess, pound the pavement or hit the streets or pick your cliche and try to find a flight surgeon willing to relate relate their memories of naval aviation. Okay, so you know the email address. You can go to iTunes, leave feedback. Um, but do send f- or leave feedback, please. Uh, still a work in progress here, and I enjoy hearing people think or have to say about the way to imp- improve things or if it's just fine or whatever. So there you go. Okay, so the subject of this podcast will be the next stop, which after AWA school is, well, for me, we back up a step. The next stop after AWA school for those who were put into the helicopter pipeline, such as myself, The next stop was search and rescue school. If you did not get put into the helicopter pipeline, the next stop was, I believe, SEER school, which stood that SEER is a acronym, survival, evasion, resistance, and escape. And after SAR school, which we're going to talk about today, will be SEER school for me. So there you go. SAR school, search and rescue school. All right, so the calendar. If you remember, uh, AWA school, we finished on the 1st of June. That was our graduation, and that was the day we departed 
Memphis, Tennessee. Some people elected to take two weeks vacation. Yours truly is one of them. And some uh, folks of my class elected to head straight to NAS North Island, which is in San Diego, California, or to Jacksonville, I believe, if they're East Coasters, to begin their their next step. But I took two weeks. So um, my orders stated that I was to check in to HC-1, or Helicopter Combat Support Squadron 1, no later than midnight on June 17th, Friday, June 17th. Oh, here, let's do a little quick tangent. I don't know if I've discussed this yet or covered this yet, but every naval squadron has a designation that every naval person is supposed to understand. Um, It's typically two or three letters followed by a dash and then numbers. The numbers, I'm pretty sure, are slightly irrelevant. They try to group them, at least in the helicopter community, they group them. So if you, the numbers did kind of give you an indication as to what aircraft formed that squadron. Um, Otherwise, it was the letter combination that gave you the indication as to what the aircraft was. So, all naval squadrons at the time I was in either began with an H or a V. H for helicopter, V for fixed wing. Don't ask me where the V, how the V means fixed wing. Somebody knows, not I. After that main designation came a letter designating the mission of that squadron. A for attack, F for fighter, P for patrol, S for anti-submarine, just as some examples. So if you put the letter H with the letter S, you get a helicopter anti-submarine squadron. Sometimes they would add a third letter, either before the H or the V or after the main designator. So you had HS and you had HSL, the L meaning light. Um... I'm trying to think of some examples of some things that might have come before. I don't think anything came before the main designator. If anything was three letters, it was H or V, then the main designator, then the third letter to further modify or further indicate to you aircraft type or mission. So, HC, the C meaning combat support. So, HC-1 was a helicopter squadron at NAS North Island that was, amongst their many other duties or missions, was running the search and rescue school for the West Coast. Because at that time, there was a a SAR school for the West Coast and a SAR school for the East Coast. So they would send you to East or West, depending on where your ultimate destination was. So my ultimate destination was West Coast, so I went to the SAR school on the West Coast. Now, I just happen to have the student workbook for Search and Rescue School right here in front of me. Yes, this book I'm holding is 24 years old. And uh, it says on the front of it, it's the Helicopter Combat Support Squadron 1 Search and Rescue Swimmers Course Student Workbook. And at the bottom, it says, The Mission of the Air Pack SAR School to train helicopter search and rescue wet crewmen in rescue procedures with emphasis on assistance to a waterborne survivor. So, 
that's what was looking that's what I was getting ready to deal with all right so one on vacation order said come back check in your next squadron or your next duty station or, or not next duty station but your next command not later than midnight on June 17th of 1983 so sure enough I did and I arrived at the airport in San Diego I want to say early afternoon uh, dressed in my uniform the funny thing is I can't remember how I got from the airport to North Island I can't remember if there was a shuttle a regular shuttle if I had to call somebody I know I don't even think I took a taxi Duh, crazy either way I got to helicopter combat support squadron one the duty desk shortly after I want to say they shortly after the squadron knocked off for the day so all that's left there are duty personnel not the entire staff so duty personnel they check you and they stamp your orders told the duty driver take me over to the barracks barracks go check in at the barracks go they have like a little front desk and they issue, you know assign you your room based on your command and the search and rescue students the search and rescue school students had one corner of a wing of an older barracks and as I go down there, you know, sure enough, I run into a boatload of people that I had just spent 12 weeks with, you know, in Memphis. And then some of those folks I even spent the five weeks with in, in uh, Pensacola at Naval Air Crew School. So it's kind of a homecoming of sorts, I suppose. It's familiar faces and how is your leave or how is your travels, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Now, quick side note, the next very next day was a Saturday, so we were had no responsibilities or duties i happened to run into a couple of guys for again in, in all places the head in the morning but they said hey we're running to disneyland today you want to come so sure enough on june 18th of 1983 maybe <laughs> my first visit to disneyland in like five years god just some crazy so six dudes piled in the back of one guy had a van so the only one with wheels and we just kind of all ran up there and had a good old time all right so the following monday Check back, actually check into the school itself as opposed to the squadron duty office. And therein I'm given the good news, bad news kind of a thing. Unlike all the previous schools that I've gone through, all two of them, the search and rescue school only forms a class one once every five weeks. The course itself is four weeks long, and then the week... After, of course, the instructors take time to catch their breath, pick the class leader or the class proctor, you know, the, the instructor that's kind of your your class liaison with the rest of the school. Pick that guy, whatever, final paperwork for the previously graduating class, paperwork for the next coming, coming class. So once every five weeks. Well, I arrived to North Island on Friday, June 17th, and the class had just formed on Monday, June 13th. So I missed it by, you know, basically the week. So that's what we're told on the 20th. Hey, we form every five weeks. The next class will form on Monday, June 18th. You now have four weeks where you basically in a called a stash status where you belong to them, but you're, you're a student, but you're not being taught anything. Well, the Navy's not one for letting people sit around and do n- nothing. So, and especially the Star School has, 
obviously experienced dealing with you know their classes forming every so often they know what to do with people as they trickle in so um they start the process the first thing they do is they give us the tour they put us in charge of no they put the guy the guy they put in charge of us was the the equipment manager let's call him that you know if you're you're in sports or played sports you know every athletic team has an equipment manager and this was an older sailor that was in charge of all the search and rescue training gear rescue harnesses swim trunks the the mocked up uniforms that the SAR swimmers wore different from your regular uniform so he was put in charge of us and the first thing he did was issue us our our basic search and rescue gear, which was a set of fins, a dive mask, booties for your feet to go into the fins, a rescue harness, and a buoyancy compensator, like a, which is like a, kind of like a life jacket kind of a thing. It's a pouch that inflates that helps you float if you have a hard time floating. And he showed us how to pack it up, and he told us put our name on on the gear because we'd be using this stuff extensively once our class formed but there's no reason for us not to have it now and start getting used to wearing it in the pool or practicing with it now search and rescue school is a syllabus that's got classroom and physical practical training so every day at search and rescue school, the class goes out for a run, the class goes out for PT, and the class spends time in the pool. Those of us who are in the stash status or waiting for a class to start status, whatever you want to call it, we would do the same things in kind of like a counter or opposite rotation. So if the class was out doing PT, we were swimming or running the class was out running we were doing pt or swimming pt is physical training by the way that's calisthenics okay and if the class was in the pool swimming we were either running or doing pt and then when the class was in the classroom learning first aid or whatever book learning they had we would clean spaces sweeps you know sweep and mop take out trash those kind of things and I'll tell you that the four weeks of being in a stash status, slowly ramping up to running six miles a day, slowly ramping up to spending all day, in, well, half a day in a pool, slowly ramping up to spending an hour, hour and a half doing calisthenics was probably the best thing for me because when the class formed, I was, in, I was in good shape and ready to go. The guy who arrived, because, you know, students w- would graduate from a school, well, you know, a school in Memphis every week they had a graduation so every week a couple dudes would show up so the guy who showed up on Friday July 15th and got thrown into search and rescue school on Monday the 18th he was having a hard time so all right so I do my four weeks of stash time on Monday July 18th uh, we stand up our class now the week Friday before we all gathered in the equipment room and we were issued, we turned in our, the stuff we were loaned and we were issued our 
initial the stuff that we were going to keep. We reissued a mask, a snorkel. I forgot about the snorkel. I have the little issue sheet here, and it all occurred on the 15th of July. We issued our mask, our snorkel, our fins, our booties, our swim trunks, a green shorts, green shirt and a hat. Now, these shorts, shirt and hat were old Vietnam-era green fatigues that they had converted to shorts, short sleeve shirts, and the marine eight-corner hat. And that was our uniform when we were in class. That was our uniform we were to wear if we went when we went to the chow hall. Um, because it was summertime, it was easy to get in and out, and it was old, and they didn't mind if you got it dirty. And that's where I was issued my number. My, my number for search and rescue school is number six. And that day, Friday the 15th, we were to go back to the barracks, pick two T-shirts out of the six we had been issued in basic training, and paint our last name on the chest and on the back, and then our number underneath our name on the front and the back and on the sleeves. So I was number six. And that number, when you went to the swimming pool, there was numbers painted on the deck. And that's where you lined up when we went to the swimming pool. We lined up on our numbers. Okay, so I have the syllabus here, well, the course book. And really, I don't know if it's the, the actual syllabus. I can't remember if this is the actual order we took the course in. Um, there's some interesting things here, like the SAR school, search and rescue school regulations is also the welcome aboard. Um, I'll just read it here. Welcome aboard. I would like to welcome you aboard the West Coast Search and Rescue School of Helicopter Combat Support Squadron 1, located at NAS, Naval Air Station, North Island. You are about to become a member of a very proud and professional group of air crewmen in the search and rescue field known as SAR Wet Crewmen. This is as opposed to SAR Dry Crewmen, which at this time, there's no such thing as SAR Dry Crewmen anymore. It is wet crew or nothing. The training you will receive during this four-week course is the finest offered in the search and rescue field today. The primary mission of SAR School is to train you and rescue waterborne survivor. Hmm. Your efforts to achieve high standards in performance and appearance will result in the development of the professionals needed to fulfill mission requirements of the Department of the Navy. This course is only the starting point for, SAR, for the SAR wet crewmen. Through self-development and self-study, you must remain current in the latest equipment procedure changes. You must be prepared to save lives under all circumstances and in all environments. Remember, the best gift you can give someone is their life. We look forward to having you aboard. On the next page are the SAR school regulations. Muster will be with the class leader at designated times. Students who feel they will be late should notify the SAR office, and it gives the phone number during working hours, or the HC1 duty office at all times. Leave will not be granted except in an emergency. No special liberty, which means you can't get extra time off. we got plenty of liberty, which is, you know, your time off when school is out and on the weekend. So no special liberty meant you weren't going to miss days of training for anything. Enter the office only to conduct business, knock, request permission to enter, and state business. Standard boot camp procedure. Instructors will be addressed as instructor, name, uniforms, greens, shirts, hat, plain white t-shirt and socks, running shoes and belt. Greens allowed only in the school spaces and the chow hall. Pool issue. 
your swimming trunks called UDT trunks, which are the same trunks the SEALs were, you know, underwater demolition team. UDT trunks in a plain white t-shirt with the last name and student number and three-inch black letters on the front and back and student number on the shoulders. Clean dungarees are working uniform for afternoon classes. No jewelry will be worn during training evolutions. No smoking in classroom. Drinking and eating are permitted as long as, is, as the area is kept clean. Keep hands off classroom displays. That meant, well, we had in the classroom, we had a couple mannequins wearing search and rescue gear and other search and rescue devices. Here, number 10, most important paychecks will be picked up and distributed by the staff. Funny thing is back then is direct uh, direct deposit was an option. I think in the active duty now, direct deposit is not an option. You will have it. <laughs> Barracks inspection scheduled for Tuesday afternoon. Surprise inspection may occur at any time. Well, I don't ever remember getting a barracks inspection in search and rescue school. Protect your valuables. Hmm. Medical and dental appointments should be scheduled through the SAR corpsman. Yes, we had a corpsman. We called him Doc. He was a guy that would take care of aches, pains, and sprains because we're, you know, we're doing physical stuff. And if you need eardrops, if you have water in the ear problems, also distributed by the SAR corpsman. All right. So after that gives the course learning objectives. There were... There's a pile of them. You have to... I'm not going to read them all. I'm just going to kind of talk about things we did. And that's... Well, that's going to probably have to do it. Because I'm sure you don't want me to read to you. Course objectives. Train during day, night, conditions, demonstrate the function. Okay, yeah, we don't need to do that. But I have the book here. I've looked through it before I cracked the microphone today. And the funny thing is, I remember doing some of this stuff. How sad is that? Uh, I remember some of these things, but some of the stuff I don't remember doing. Hmm. All right. All right. So, Search and Rescue School, we formed on Monday, July 18th. And aside from the, the workbook was used in the class. You heard the regulations talk about afternoon classes. And yes, most of the class time sitting in a classroom was done in the afternoon. Mornings were for PT, running, and swimming. So I'm going to say typically PT and ran, running went together. So we would start PT out front of the school. The school is by the Naval Air Station uh, medical facility, like a clinic. And the there's a main base road and a road to the clinic. And these two roads, they form like a little triangle of grass and also there's a grass section right next to the building so depending on the mood of the instructor sometimes we'd go out to the little grass triangle and do PT or sometimes we'd do the PT in this other little grass section right by the school building now PT was all kinds of stuff jumping jacks push ups a thing the Navy does called 8 count bodybuilders where you squat down shoot your legs out do a push up Spread your legs, close your legs, squat again, stand up. Then they also do this regular squat thrust where you squat down, stick your legs out, bring your legs back in, stand up. And then uh, another favorite was the flutter kick where you'd lay on your back, kind of put your fists under the small of your back to lift your bottom off the ground, and then you swing your legs in the air like you're swimming. And any number of other standard calisthenics that you had learned through basic training or through life at that point. 
and we would do a mixture of these things for at least an hour, possibly an hour and a half. Um, over and over again, repetition, and you know, aside from putting you in good physical shape, it, they were designed to build the muscles and the endurance in those muscles that you would need for heavy-duty swimming, dragging people around, disentangling parachutes, whatever. So after an hour, an hour and a half of that, the next thing would we go, we would run. Now, Naval Air Station North Island had a had a running course that went around the perimeter of the air station that started at the gym just a quarter mile down the road from where the search and rescue school was. So we'd form up because you ran in formation and we'd you know start running along the course. So when you got to the sign that says you were three miles away from whatever, we really knew we were two or three quarters of a mile away from away because a quarter mile off. Now, if we turned around before the three-mile point, meaning we had run six miles that day, um, it was kind of a rarity. Uh, and it meant that we'd spent more time on PT and we're running out of time. We had to get to the pool. Most of the time, it was we hit the three-mile point and turned around, so five and a half miles. Uh, I remember one a couple times, we went out to the four miles, but boy, that was... <laughs> That's luck. Now, yours truly was not the best runner. And we'd start in our formation and we'd run our little pace. And slowly but surely, the pace would be too much for those of us who were, were a little bigger or heavier than some of the smaller or lighter dudes. And our pace would start to falter. And as long as we didn't give up, it was okay for us to start, you know, kind of slowing down to run at our own pace. Never quit. Don't stop and don't walk unless you hurt yourself, okay? You keep running because when you stop and quit, then you catch all kinds of crap. And I don't remember anybody ever stopping unless they had strained or sprained something or they had to, you know, vomit. We had a couple dudes that would run and then they'd run so hard they'd have to throw up. They'd bend over, throw up, and then keep running. So... Being that I was slower, most of the times while everyone else was running six miles, I was only getting to five because, you know, you slowly, slowly fall back. When the class reached a turnaround point, the class would turn around and come back, and you were expected to fall in back with the class to try to keep up with the class until you just couldn't anymore. So while everyone else is running six miles or so, I'm running five, five and a quarter, five and a half because I'm just slower. So after calisthenics PT or running we would we would move to the swimming pool we would stop because now we're wearing greens for all of this we're wearing our special search and rescue school green uniform we'd swing by the lockers pick up our SAR gear again the mask with snorkel fins booties rescue harness and buoyancy compensator or life vest and your Gear was packed in a certain way. The fins on top of each other, the booty stuffed in the feet, the rescue harness laying on top, the buoyancy compensator on top of that, and then the mask bounding all that stuff in together. So you could carry all your stuff. The handle would be the the straps, the heel straps or your fins would be the handle to carry all this stuff together. And we'd march over to the swimming pool because it's uns- it's unsightly to run carrying stuff. Otherwise, we would have run, I'm sure. 
But the swimming pool again was, you know, shoot, five minute walk, so it was right around the corner. Go into the locker room, take off your green stuff. You had your t-shirt on, put on your swimming trunks. Take a complete shower. I mean, you get everything wet, okay? Because you'd walk out onto the deck, the, you know, the area around the swimming pool, and the instructors would look you over. And if there was some part of you that was not dry, that was dry, like you weren't completely wet, you would be put into the push-up position, and they would hose you down with cold water. So all it took was one person having this done to them to show everybody that they were serious, make sure every part of you is wet. And if you can, if you think about taking a shower with clothes on, you need to make sure the seat of your pants which is going to stay dry as everything drips around you, gets wet. So you would see people kind of you know rubbing their backsides with water to make sure no part of them was dry. And then you proceed smartly or quickly to your number painted on the deck and stand there and put your, your little pack of search and rescue gear on the deck in front of you and you'd stand at attention. Now, you've just taken a shower. Um, it's mid-morning, so it's okay. Sometimes we would swim first if we need to spend more time in the pool. So if it's swimming first, it's you know now it's 8 o'clock in the morning. And in San Diego in the summer, I don't know if you've been there, but San Diego in the summer tends to be overcast until about 10 o'clock. So you're soaking wet. Temperature's maybe a little chill. And the pool is calm like glass. And I remember my buddy, Richard, who would be standing next to me, would whisper to me, hey, Mike, that water looks cold, dude. I'm like, tell him to shut up before you get in trouble, you know, just to get in your head. Now, so we're all standing there at attention on our numbers, the entire class, 15 or so of us, with our gear laying on the on the ground. And the instructors would yell, SAR! Okay, when they yelled, SAR, you bent over, scooped up your stuff, and jumped in the pool and proceeded to put the stuff on. And you had three minutes to do it. So you'd, you'd, be, you'd jump in the water. And my personal procedure was to, I have the stuff, the, the straps of the fins gripped in my hands. I grab the mask with my other hand and slide it up over my hand up into my arm, my upper shoulder. I also grab the life vest and slide it up over my shoulder, my harness, and I'm holding in my hand my fins with my booties. So still holding the stuff with my hand. I take one booty out, stick my head in the water, put my booties on one at a time, then put the fins on one at a time. Once your fins are on, it's very easy to tread water. And you can kind of take your time putting the rest of your stuff on without sinking. So you're just slowly treading water with your fins. Now you can pull your vest off. Put it on the other arm. Take the harness. Put the harness on correctly because the harness went on underneath the vest. Put the vest on correctly. Then put the mask on. And then you'd swim over to the side of the pool. Jumped out. You know, pulled yourself out, sat on the side, and put your arms and legs in the air. And they would come by and check and make sure you put your stuff on correctly. If you didn't, do it over again. The first week of search and rescue school, you had three minutes to complete this. The rest of the time at search and rescue school, whenever they t- they made you do this, you had two minutes. And believe you me, by the end of the first week, you were finishing it in two minutes anyway. You had a you had your method down, and you know it, was, it became second nature at that point. 
It's just one of those things to help you deal with being in the water, facing the water, monkeying around in the water, whatever. Now, Search and Rescue School is designed for people to rescue down pilots in the water. They eject from their aircraft, or if their aircraft is not equipped with ejection sheets, they're ditching or bailing out. They bail out from their aircraft or ditch their aircraft in the water. And, you know, your job is to go along and go get them and help them out. So now begins a long process teaching you, you know, not all. They teach you out of the various swim strokes. You're taught the backstroke, the breaststroke, the side stroke, and the crawl. Um, and those are the strokes you were tested on. And how you did, you know, you tested on them weekly. And now at some point... You know, you're swimming a lot. We're in the water. We're practicing jumping. Now, okay, here, this is the main, this is the main thing for search and rescue is that a search and rescue swimmer is put into the water to help somebody out from the door of a helicopter. If you've listened to the other episodes of the show, you know that the reason I'm even here is because I'm going to be a helicopter crewman. So helicopters deliver search and rescue swimmers to their survivors, their victims, the people they're supposed to rescue. And they're delivered from the door of a helicopter flying 10 feet above the water and they're flying at 10 knots forward speed. And that's called a 10 and 10. And so, you know, the the jumping in the water, putting on your gear, while it's meant to get you used to being in the water and doing something in the water, you're typically delivered to your work via a 10 and 10. And if you are being delivered to a real job, you are getting dressed on the way out there. So when it's time for your 10 and 10, you're already wearing your harness, your vest, your fins, your wetsuit if you need one, your mask, all that. You're wearing all that. You've got it all ready. So they had a little 10-foot tower at the pool. And then after we would jump in and do our little SAR put on your gear exercise, then we'd go and practice 10 and 10s from the 10-foot tower. And there's a procedure. You sit in the door. The In a in a real situation, you're there with another crewman who's operating a hoist, right? Because you jump in the water. The helicopter lowers a hoist to pull you back out. So in the 10 and 10 simulation in the pool, you're standing there and one of the instructors is being the role of your fellow air crewman in the, heli- in the aircraft. And you're sitting in the aircraft, you're getting ready to enter the water. You don't have a headset on. You can't hear any communication. Um, it's hard to talk. I mean, you yell. You're wearing hearing protection. The other guy has a helmet on. But when it's time for you to go in the water, he will tap you on the shoulder three times. And when you feel a third tap, you'd shove yourself off, assume the correct water entry position, which is feet crossed. Your left arm across your chest to keep the stuff that you have, you know, your your rescue harness and your life vest from flapping flapping up and hitting you in the face. Your right arm holding your mask on your head because it's not over your eyes, it's on the top of your head holding it there. And then your left hand holding your right elbow. So you're kind of jumping in the water like that. And when you hit the water, then you pull the mask down, clear it from water wave to the aircraft that you're okay and they give the appropriate I'm okay signal and off they go. So at the pool, 
you know, they'll try to trick guys. Because, you know, they're, they're keyed up, they're nervous. And they'll tap them on the shoulder twice, and the third, the third tap, they'll hit them on the side of the head. Sorry, <laughs> they'll hit them on the side of the head. Or they'll hit them on the shoulder, I mean, the, on the arm, or on the other side. And if you don't feel the third tap, the, the same place you felt the first two, you're not supposed to go. And, and they'd, grab, <laughs> they'd have them by the harness, you know, knowing that they're going to mess with them. They'd tap them on the shoulder twice on the side of the head, and the person would try to go, and they're being held. And it's kind of funny watching them go, get, come back, and the guy would tell them, hey, you didn't do it right. So you do your 10 and 10 into the pool, and then you swim to the other side, and then, uh, you know, various other things would be going on. Um. Ultimately, you would work towards what they call parachute disentanglement, which is a situation that occurs if somebody ejects from a high season speeder. You know, a jet aircraft, they eject, but they're unconscious when they hit the water and the parachute lands on them. Or they flail about because they're panicking or whatever, and they get tangled up in their gear. Now, this is important because legend has it that a regular parachute fully opened and deployed underwater so essentially a parachute filled with water weighs seven tons and it will pull you down without mercy so if you see someone tangled in a parachute it is is behooves you to move quickly and it behooves them for you to move quickly and get them out of that situation because parachute fully deployed underwater will pull you down I don't know if it really weighs seven tons, but it it is known that it will pull you down. And to illustrate this point, one day, at some point during this, the course of the school, they took a parachute into the pool, they shoved it all into water, and all 15 of us were swimming, holding this parachute up. And each person, in turn, had to swim under the parachute, go to the middle, and push the middle up out of the water, Say their name and number and go back. And you had to do it without using your hands, you know, to swim. You use your hands to push the thing up. So all you're doing is their legs holding you out of the water while you're saying your name and number. And I remember the parachute being, you know, quite smothering. Uh, Put your head inside of a plastic bag and that kind of a feeling. So, yeah, parachutes fully deployed underwater, dangerous to, if you're still attached to them, very dangerous to pull you down. So you learned how to do parachute disentanglement. And they had, a, they had a method called the spinal highway where you would come along, approach the swimmer, and you'd grab approach the, swimmer, approach the survivor. You'd grab him by his, his, not his rescue harness, but his survival vest. And you would slowly start pulling him backwards. You're swimming backwards. And it, it makes the lines play out. And you, can, and you would go underwater and you would just unhook any of the par- the shroud lines, is what they're called. Any of the parachute shroud lines, if they're hooked on any part of his gear, you unhook them and release them. And you go all the way down his back, all the way underneath, down by his feet, and clear him and clear him back out. At that point, if he still attached his parachute during at his normal parachute attachment points on his shoulders, you would release those, and the guy is clear of his parachute. So we practiced that many times. How to release someone, disentangle them from their parachute. Release them from any of their survival gear. Get them ready to be brought up into the aircraft. Another thing we're taught, we were taught would be basic life-saving skills in the water. Different ways to approach a survivor that's head down in the water. How to get them out of, you know, 
uh, you approach him from the front, you approach him from the rear. What to do when the survivor's panicking and he wants to climb aboard you because he's, you know, he's tired of being in the water and he's going to use you as a flotation device. You know, how to get out of these various situations. And, you know, and the, <laughs> and the instructors would demonstrate with, on you with much gusto. Let me tell you, there's, you know, there's a scenario and you're taught if the, if the survivor grabs you from behind, starts pushing your head into water and he's grabbing you by the throat, there's a very clear step-by-step procedure on what to do where you reach up with whatever hand, you know, say your right hand, you grab his right elbow and you pinch and you grab his right hand and it's very easy to have him, you know, undo his arm or you grab both of his elbows and shove him up over your head. Um, you take him underwater with you. That's another thing you would do. Once he grabs you, you push yourself underwater and because he doesn't want to be there, sometimes he lets go. But anyway, these guys would just jump on you and you're at least expecting it and you were expected to do what you had to do. Um, some other funny, another funny, one of the funniest moments I remember at the pool was one of my classmates he had done finishing, you know, he did his little practice disentanglement or whatever he was doing. He was standing on the side of the pool. He was done. And he was pointing, telling another guy, don't forget this. He was doing his job. He's don't forget this. Hey, don't forget that. Basically kind of coaching him along, right? Or any instructors took offense at this and said, oh, you think you're a search and rescue school instructor now? Well, if you're a SAR instructor now, what you need to do is you need to do instructor push-ups. 100 instructor push-ups. And instead of a regular push-up where, you know, you know what a push-up is, an instructor push-up is your foot is your feet are up on a chair. So in the up position, you're level instead of the down position, you're level, right? And you go down and you're at an incline and you have to push yourself back up. And it's okay, 100 of those. And when you're done, you can get back in the pool or get back to whatever. So here's this guy doing his stuff. And and even though we've been doing calisthenics every day and running and swimming and all that, you know, 100 of these things is you know hard. And I think he probably got through 25 or 30 of them and he's like running out of gas. And the, uh, the guy who told him turns around and says, hey, I can't hear you. What's your count? So... He thinking fast. He says, uh, 61, 62. And the guy says, if you're going to lie, <laughs> may as well lie and start at 98. So he goes, okay, 98, 99, let him off. You know, so just, it was just one of those things where they just kind of mess with you every once in a while. Um, let's see. What else am I forgetting? I mean, I'm, I guess if I read the book, I'll crack the book and I can just kind of look over the table of contents. All right. Maybe I should just run down the lesson topics here. Um, you know, all right, so what did they teach us? They taught us first aid, how first aid is important to search and rescue because there's a lot of times you, the dude you're pulling out of the water has just gone through an injection. He might have something broken. So that's why you have first aid and fractures. Uh, wounds and injuries. Oh, okay. There's something fun we did. We did what was called, what's called moulage training. A moulage training is where someone pretends to be a victim and someone goes and helps them out. Uh, you know, uh, uh, assesses their injury and applies, uh, applies the correct first aid procedure. Well, moulage training is where you have these wounds that are strapped on, you know, these fake wounds that are strapped onto you, if you're pretending to be the victim, that drip blood. Um, some of it squirts blood. Like, um, like some, like, here's an example. Someone, to simulate a, a gunshot wound to the arm, you strap this thing to your arm and it shows a piece of, you know, a big open red thing with bone sticking out of it. 
and then hooked a little red a little bag full of fake blood and and you know if you're pretending to be the victim you squeeze it to make the blood drip out so the guy can the guy who's coming along to practice can excuse me the guy who's coming along to practice can see that it's a gunshot wound to the arm apply direct pressure whatever and they had ones for you know guts hanging out uh gunshot wound to the head which is the one i had on so i put on this face mask and barely see out of it but you know there's this thing on my head um and then they would tell you you know with the class was split in half you know everyone would take turns one half would be victims the other half would be rescuers or you know we did this on the ground. This is what, this is something we did in the little grass triangle. So everyone who's driving by can see us people wounded with blood stuff flying everywhere. It's kind of funny. Um, so half the class is dressed up as victims. Other class would go, you know, around the corner. They say, okay, go help out. You got that person. You got that person. And then you would go up to your person and apply your first aid procedures. Um, and then we'd all swap. Those who did the work before now got to be the victims. So I got to wear this gunshot wound to the head thing, and I was—I remember, uh, you know, when they were coming around, I, I was screaming and yelling, oh, "I'm hurt!" Ah, you know, and I was whipping my head around, squeezing the bulb to make the blood squirt everywhere. It was lots of fun. And finally, <laughs> now this was a training evolution that our corpsman, you know, Doc was running. Finally, he said, "Okay, you're in shock. Lay down," because he was tired of hearing me scream and yell. Because I was flailing and I was running around, you know, and the guy was trying to help me out, you know, he's got to wrestle me to the ground and get me to calm down so it was um you know we were encouraged to try to make it not just lay there and you know be moaning and groaning but you know some people are actually freaking out when they're hurt and, you know one 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 more thing to deal with all right so let's see um all right so first aid cpr of course deal with shock burns right some guys you're pulling out of burning you know they're they might have got burned by ejection cycle or they're ditching their aircraft and they were trapped in their aircraft and burning or something. So, um, again, we learned to use our equipment. They taught us how to do that, our, what the rescue devices are, the rescue devices that are used in aircraft, you know, jungle penetrators, things like that, cable cutters, safety belts, um, let's see, various marker and locator devices. There's something, you know, you have smokes that you use to mark where a swimmer is, flares for the nighttime, uh, as as a naval aviator that might be downed, he has he also has smokes, dye, sea dye markers, um, things like that. We were taught what to expect to find attached to a jet pilot. What would because sometimes they have what they call rigid seat survival kits that when they eject, a piece of their ejection seat stays with them, and inside that is little oxygen bottles if they eject at altitude, uh, a raft other survival gear so what you would expect to find still attach a guy who might be unconscious um you know, you know that kind of stuff again we already talked about parachute disentanglement uh, they talked a little bit about what they call motor whale boat operations and sometimes some search and rescue swimmers might deploy from a boat a, a smaller what's called a motor whale boat a smaller boat rather than from an aircraft so they talked about some of that stuff, and then sort of, and then SAR tactics, the way to approach a swimmer, the way, you know, how to deal, how to identify sea state, if there's fuel in the air, another thing, sea predators, you know, if guys bleeding, you're in shark infested waters, 
you got to deal with that. Um, and they would give you, you know, if you're given a rescue, if you're given a scenario, you're supposed to be able to develop or supposed to be able to analyze it and come up with how you're going to uh, approach the and deal with it. Now, search and rescue school, like I said, was four weeks long. Um, the every day had, you know, a week and a number. Week one, day one, these things are supposed to be done. Week one, day two, these things are supposed to be done. Well, week three, day four, the only things that were on the training or the syllabus or the objectives for the day was a mile and a quarter open ocean swim and parachute disentanglement at night. And the mile, the open ocean swim done first thing in the morning and you have to wait till sunset to do the night disentanglement. So let's look at the one, two. So our help week three, day four for us was August 4th. So after our open ocean swim is done at approximately, I don't know, 10, 10.30, we have to wait till sun goes down. And, you know, early August, the sun's not going down till 8.30 or so. So we had all that time to kill. Being the military and being a school that's supposed to develop mental toughness as well as physical toughness, that day is called Hell Day in Search and Rescue School. Hell day, you, you start by taking a test in the morning. You go to the classroom, you take a test. Um, I forget, CPR, tactics, disentanglement, I forget. It was just a written test. And on the blackboard in the classroom is a big sign by the instructors that says, we are not your friends. Okay, thank you very much. So do the take the test, okay, gear up, hop on the bus, go out to the jetty. North Island, NAS North Island has a jetty stretching out. We go out to the end of that jetty. And you can see a mile away a fence that separates the base from the from the rest of the world. And that fence goes all the way to the water. And you'd swim from the jetty to where that fence hits the water. The bus will be waiting. Um, go. Okay, now. But you always swim with a buddy. And you never get supposed to get more than 10 feet apart from your partner. So... Into the water we go, and off we start swimming. Now, wouldn't you know that two people got separated? And this is on hell day. All right, so we finish our open ocean swim. We're taking the lunch. When we come back from lunch, early, you know, we ate early. I think we ate at like 11 that day. So at noon, pretty much, maybe I've had, we didn't have a full lunch that day, I don't remember. Hell, the rest of the day really got started so all day means we run upt you run upt we've already done our big swim so you're a little bit tired from that run pt run um no giving up and this whole time the instructors rather than being helpful rather than being encouraging Rather than giving you pointers or tips, now they're calling you names, verbally abusing you just about. Uh, nothing really bad, but just a complete 180 from what you're used to, which can be, a, I guess, a mental shock as it is. All the while, while you're trying to do your PT, all the while, while you're trying to run. And at one point, uh, they put us on a bus. 
drive us over to the beach where the SEAL teams train. SEAL Beach is what they call it. And on there, there's it's right on the Silver Strand. It's just south of the big Coronado Towers. It's big white sandy beaches, and we ran up and down on the beach. Now, I don't know if you've run in sand before, but it's not it's not easy. It, you know, it slows you down. It's harder. It's harder on your legs. And, you know, we're running, 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 being led around. Again, being the slow guy, I kept falling out. And at one point, some st- instructor attached himself to me and started to, again, verbally abuse me about how I was too slow, I was a slug, whatever. Uh, so we ran around there for an hour, hour and a half, get back on the bus, take us back to the building. Uh, this time, now the lead star instructor, here a quick tangent, was a Navy SEAL. He was an E-7, a chief petty officer, a Navy SEAL. Uh, his nickname was K-Bar, Chief K-Bar. His name was similar. K-Bar is a knife that SEALs use, so he was Chief K-Bar. So Chief K-Bar gets on the bus when we get back to the school building and says, okay, we're going to start running again. If you quit now, now, now it's getting about 4.30 in the afternoon, maybe 5.30, the sun's starting to go down. If you quit I will ensure that you're you're you are sent directly to the fleet as a nine days. And you know he basically tells you if you quit, you're going to lose your job. Okay, don't quit. Anybody quits, I don't care what schools you've already been to. You're going to be sent as a someone who couldn't who failed this course. And when you, if you fail any course in the Navy, you know they guarantee you a job. And if you fail any of the courses to get you to that job, you belong to the Navy. They could do whatever they want with you. So he was just reminding us anybody who quits or drops on request that, that no one ever did, but anyone asked to quit or, or whoever stops running, you're out. Okay, so we're going to form up here. We're going to start running. Now we're going to run um, the course I was telling you about. We started at the other end, and we're running and running, and the sun's going down, and they're still there screaming and yelling at you. Um, it's been a long day, nothing but calisthenics or running. Um, the two guys that split up, they had to do all their stuff tied together the rest of the day with a piece of rope. <laughs> okay. Now, I remember very clearly, it's probably, oh, I don't know, 7, 7.30. I'm heading, I'm running in a direction, I could, I'm running due west because I can see the point, the sun setting behind uh, Point Loma. I'm probably one of the last two people strung out because, again, as we run, people, pace is different. We start stringing out. We're no longer in formation. And the bus that, w- that would follow everybody comes up, pulls up next to me, and tells me, get on the bus. And I'm running. I said, no, I'm not quitting. He's like, no, damn it. Get on the bus. We're almost done. I'm picking everybody up. I didn't believe him. He had to like tell me twice. Really? I'm not messing around. Get on the, get on the effing bus. Okay. So I get on the bus. There's two other dudes already on there. I'm thinking, oh, I wonder if he had to yell at them as much. So the bus goes along and picks up everybody who's strung out, gets to the front where you know, there's still a little pack of dudes hanging tough, still running. Chief K-Bar gets on the bus. Everybody off, get off the bus, damn it, get off the bus. We all get on the bus, get in a push-up, and we start doing push-ups, and he's yelling at us, okay, and when you're done with your push-ups, you get on the bus, and we're going to head to the pool and to do our night disentanglement. Okay, so sun's going down, sun's setting. We drive, round everybody up. I think he gave, we all got a little box lunch a sandwich and an apple to eat while we were taken back to uh, the school building. We're taken to 
to the pool. We get our showers completely wet. We put on our gear and we sit on the floor and we wait. Um, wait like 10 minutes for it to get completely pitch dark outside. So now there's 15 of us, right? You know, who's going to go first, right? And they just the, the chief is walking back and forth. Behind. Who's going to go first? He's saying, who's going to go first? And he grabs some guy, picks him up, runs him out the door through the office. And they hand it like it goes into the office, office door closed, and the door to the outside opens. And you can hear all of a sudden pandemonium break out. Uh, Flight of the Valkyries by, you know, Wagner, you know, that the scene from uh, Apocalypse Now that, that they're playing with a the helicopter. They're playing that music. There's dudes yelling. There's whistles blowing. All kinds of stuff going on. Like, what the heck? You know? Um, and and then it dies down a bit. And then it shuts off. And then, okay, who's next, right? It's going to be... And they grab me. So they run me out. And sure enough, as soon as the door closes, someone hits me in the eyes with a flashlight. Someone's blowing a whistle. They start playing that loud song again on a boom, you know, on a boom box. The place is going nuts. And they climb me up to the ladder. All kinds of pandemonium in the... Guy points with a flashlight to someone floating, you know, in the water, all tangled in parachute. There's your survivor. Go. Ten, you know, three taps of the shoulder, ten and ten in the water, I swim over. I do my parachute disentanglement procedures, untangle them, do whatever, check them out, swim to the edge when we're done. And he says, okay, you know, he passed, fine. So now I get to help create the pandemonium confusion as each guy comes out. And so all... 15 or so guys, they come out, they get yelled at, screamed at, pandemonium crazy, go do his parachute disentanglement, and the class is all done. We didn't lose a single dude. So here's the end of the night. That's probably almost 10 o'clock. Everyone's tired. They're beat. They've been mentally abused all day, physically abused all day. The chief sets us down and says, okay, you know, we didn't lose anybody. Congratulations. You know, you've uh, you've made it through hell day. We didn't lose anybody. We didn't have to show up till class till 10 o'clock the next day. Um, and, you know, that was, that was, that's basically the climax of search and rescue school is going through that. No one failed. Uh, the rest of the week up until graduation, you know, week Friday of week forwards graduation, we did more, a couple more written tests couple more days in the pool you know again pt every day running every day we went and did a fun run at Balboa park we all bought the same you know they're searching there's cl- uh, school specific shirts for sale so we're all encouraged to buy uh, the same shirt we wore our udts and went through run through bubble park uh, up hills down hills around um spent a couple hours doing that they call it a fun run because it's a new environment and we're showing off everyone stayed in formation because everyone's pretty much at that point <laughs> in great shape. Um, all, and it was showing off to the public a bit, but I don't know how many people are in Balboa Park on a Thursday morning at 10 o'clock. But you know, we were there. We did our thing. Um, and then the, you know, Friday of the last week was graduation. Really wasn't a big deal. Uh, okay, they're all not big deals. And we, we all take a picture. The officers give a little speech, congratulate us. Everyone's given their little certificate. And then you proceed to go to the duty office to check out of HC1 and check into your next command. Which for us was a group called, the uh, short name was FAZO, FAZO, FAZO Trade Group Hack, which stood for Fleet Aviation Specialized Operational Training Group Pacific. 
And Phaso ran the Sear School. So Sear School is next for us. But we had to check out of our barracks. We had to move into the Phaso barracks. So we had all this garbage going on to get done the rest of the day Friday. Because um, graduations are typically in the morning. Um, and that pretty much wraps up Search and Rescue School. It was at that point, you know, we're, we're uh, me personally, I was in probably peak physical condition at that point. It was all downhill from there. Um, even though once you get into the fleet and once you get to your squadron, you're supposed to maintain SAR, SAR standards, which are six day jumps and four night every six months. Oh, yeah, I completely forgot that. You know, at some point in search and rescue school, we actually go up in a live helicopter, a real live helicopter, and do 10 and 10s into the bay. We did our six-day jumps. I don't remember the night jumps, though. That's kind of odd. But we must have done them because you have to do six and four night to be qualified or maintain your standard, maintain your qualification. So actually, at one point in search and rescue rescue school, I want to say it was the beginning of the fourth week. We've done everything. We're, we went through hell day already. So I think the that first day of the fourth week is when, or first or second day is when we did our our six-day jumps from a real live helicopter. A lot of fun. The San Diego Bay, though, it's like, it's like jumping into a, a diesel fuel pit, I tell you. You know, water, just not, not quite nice. Um, all right, so we did that. Search and rescue school. I've, I've run it down for you. Um, it's very likely I might have skipped over some things. It's very likely I might have skipped some more highlights, but I'm tr- trying to keep this to an hour, right around an hour. Um, so let's think. Let me quick do a quick mental checklist. Yeah, I've, I've pretty much hit the highlights. I, I I think the listener, you have a taste of what it's like to what the search and rescue school was like back in the early 80s i don't know what it's like now hoping that maybe some like i say at every show maybe some current air crewmen or naval aviators will give me feedback and tell me what it's like now what i'm missing maybe they'll contribute their own stories there's some there's a lot of good stories out there a lot of stories worth telling happen every day in naval aviation some are lessons learned some are just funny and some will, you know, touch your heart, I suppose. All right, so next up will be Sear School, Survival, Evasion, Resistance, and Escape. That'll be the next show. Until then, stay safe and God bless. Bye.